right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Warm enough? Uh, well, hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm a teacher over at Western Christian High School and friends with Brian, and so I'm really excited to be able to hang out with you guys this morning. Just as a means of getting to know each other a little bit, uh, I want to play a quick little game. Okay, you guys, are heard, guys heard of two truths and a lie? Okay, two truths and a lie. I'm going to make three statements about myself. Okay, two of them are true. One of them's a lie. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and be like, hey, I think it's this one or whatever. Okay, and so first one, okay, first statement, okay, I've rode my bike across the entire country. Okay, like I started Pacific Ocean, rode a, a bicycle all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, that's option number one. Option number two is that in 11 years of marriage, I have been moved seven times. Okay, I've been married 11, for 11 years, I almost said 11 times. I've been married 11 years, and within those 11 years, we've moved seven times. And then option number three, I've been shot in the face. Okay, shot in the face, real gun, this face. Go ahead, turn to your neighbor, tell them which one you think it is. Okay, hold your neighbor accountable, don't lie. Two of them are true, one of them's a lie, okay? How many of you are listening, you say, number three, that one's gotta be true. You look like you've been shot in the face. Anybody? Yeah, a couple of you, right? Actually, that one's true. That one's true. I have been shot in the face. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, I have pictures on my phone if you want to see them later. Um, 38 caliber revolver, ladies' night at a shooting range, bad combination. Um, talk to me after the service. Option number two, how many of you guys are like, that's a lie? 11 years, like, you're like 17 years old. Like, there's no way you've been married since you were six. Okay, only one, okay, that one's true, that one's true. I've been married 11 years, we've moved seven times. Uh, God willing, we are good now, we are not planning on moving um, anymore. But that brings me to number one, okay? I tried to ride my bike across the country. I did start in the Pacific Ocean. I made it through California, Arizona, New Mexico. But have you ever been to Texas? <laughs> it is so big. <laughs> and hot and humid, and I have asthma. <laughs> and that just, again, another bad combination that did not pan out in my favor. Um, I got sick, I ended up flying home out of Austin, Texas. It was college, a couple of the guys I was riding with, they made it the whole way, but I did not. Okay, so that's, that's number, option number one was in fact a lie. So um, I wanna mix it up, I wanna play one more round. But instead of me giving you statements uh, that I'm just coming up with about myself, I'm gonna give you three statements that Jesus said, okay? Play two truths and a lie with them. Let's see what happens. John 3.16. Ooh, it got quiet. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay? Option number one. Option number two. John 14, verse six. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Option number two. Option number three, just a few verses later, John 14, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's option number three. Go ahead, turn to your neighbor. Hopefully at this point you're like, this guy's a heretic. <laughs> you're questioning either why Brian brought me this morning or if I really know how two truths and a lie is meant to be played, right? Okay, go ahead, let me clear the air. Go ahead and exhale, okay? You can, you can set your rocks down. You don't need to throw them at me. I do believe all three of these statements are true, 
Okay, genuinely, I believe that everything that I just read in quoting Jesus is actually 100% factual. Like, I believe that God in all of his might and all of his holiness so deeply and passionately loved the world, loved, loved us, even though we were, were hell-bent in rebellion against him. He loved us so much that in his, in his joy, he, he sent Jesus in order that anyone so that you, I, so that anyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in him will not be separated from God forever, but will instead be invited into the family of God, able to experience fullness of life, not only when we die, but also in this life here and now. I, I believe that is true. At the same time, I believe John 14, verse 6. I'm fully convinced that in light of what God has done through sending Jesus, in order for us to be made right with him, that it is only through Jesus that we are able to be made right with him. You see, I, I, I long for people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation to come to know the reality of John 3.16 because I believe that John 14 verse 6 is true. And hopefully I live my life in such a way that proves it, like my time, my money, my career, everything I have, hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm committing it to those two things, the, the truth that, that God so loved the world that he was willing to die in our place for our sin and that through that reality, anyone can come to a knowledge of him. However, when the rubber meets the road, sometimes I can read Jesus' teaching on prayer, like John 14, 13 and 14, and I don't know if I could say that I believe these truths with the same confidence. Like, I'm just, just being honest up here. Now, obviously, I would never say that I don't believe what he is saying. But if I'm honest, I think my life does a lot of the speaking for me. Like, I read passages, like the one I already read. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Like, maybe I'm alone here, but I, for one, struggle to actually pray in such a way that shows I genuinely believe this. Or what about Mark 11, 23 and 24? Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says, it will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What about Luke 11 verses 9 and 10? I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Church, these are massive statements. Like this is huge. And again, I believe every single one of them. I really do. I don't think Jesus is misled. I don't think he is lying. I don't think he is like over-promising and under-delivering in, in any way at all. I really believe every single word that I've just read in quoting Jesus. But since that's the case, I think, or at least I hope that this is the case for most, if not all of us. And I also believe that, 
that, that Jesus is not only able, but willing to answer our prayers. If all of that is true, then why are my hair, my, 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 my hair, why are my prayer habits what they are? Why are the rhythms of prayer in my life, the day in, day out, habits that I've developed in my own life, what they are? There seems to be a contradiction between what I say I believe and what my life shows that I believe. You see, if we're looking at it from a communal perspective, like I, I, I know this, this church is a church of prayer. I mean, the 27 long minute announcements was evidence of that, right? But as a church and, and as individuals, if, if we're gonna genuinely believe Jesus when he says the things that he says about prayer, then, then why are we, not, maybe not Ignite City Church, but why is the church in America, the church at large, why, are, why aren't we known for this? Why isn't there an understanding that, that anybody could go to a church, to go to God's people and, and, and have their needs met and find people who are gonna be compassionate or are gonna reflect Jesus to them? Like, wh- why is that not the like, most widely known thing? Why is that not the worst kept secret in our society? Like, I'm not saying that, that people who have deep, like intimate prayer lives don't exist. I'm not saying that there aren't even people in this room who that is true about. But generally speaking, I think that most of us don't maintain the kind of prayer rhythms that we wish we did. And there's this, there's this disconnect between what we profess to believe about prayer and the role that prayer actually plays in our lives. And so this morning, I wanna jump into a passage. And if you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 17. I believe this passage points to three reasons why we have this disconnect between what we ascribe to about prayer in our heads and the actual posture that we maintain towards prayer in our hearts. And now it's, it's, it's a lot of verses to cover, and so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and skip around a little bit, but if we, can, if we can look to this passage, Luke 17, starting in verse 20, and we can at least identify some of the reasons for the issue with our faith and our prayer in these words of Jesus, then I think we'll be on our way towards making an accurate diagnosis of our problem in hopes of finding a cure for it. And so if you're following along, go ahead and, 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 and read uh, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20 through 30, and then I'll, uh, I'll break it up into little easier to chew bits as we go, okay? So here we go. Luke uh, chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Here's what it says. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow, or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were They were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. 
So at first glance, you might be reading this passage and be like, look, my friend, you started talking about prayer. This passage seems to be about the, the end times, right? And that's because it totally is, right? Um, the bookends of the passage I'm looking to cover today basically start with Jesus answering the Pharisees' question about when the kingdom of God would come. And then it ends like in Luke 18, verse 8, where he responds by asking if he will find faith on the earth when he actually returns, okay? At the same time, like this passage is entirely about, the, the, about Jesus' return, but at the same time, it is inescapably about prayer and about faith as well, and Jesus' concern for a lack of each. See, initially, I was just going to work through verse, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, but to do so would, first of all, miss the context of the passage. Like, it's so important to understand who Jesus is talking to and what he's responding to in verses 1 through 8, but at the same time, I think it would leave out the first reason from the text that many of us don't have the rhythms of prayer that we wish we did. You see, if you're taking notes, in light of this passage, the first reason that I'm convinced that we don't pray with the consistency or the intensity that we wish we did is simply because of an overabundance of comfort. We have this overabundance of comfort in our lives. And I know that that's a painting with a very broad brush, but I think that brush would hit almost every single one of our lives. Like we live lives of comfort, of pride, of many of the things that, that we read about in this passage. Okay, over and over and over again, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament talk about the challenges of combining faith and wealth. Not that the two are, are uh, incapable of interacting with one another, but, but the difficulty of it when they do. Even in the passage that comes after this one, uh, Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, Jesus is talking about a rich man, who, or to a rich man, who's decided that a, a, a life of worldly success is too much to give up in exchange for a life of following Jesus. And so when we read the New Testament and it's talking about those who are, are wealthy or it's talking about the, the rich, it's talking about us. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. Like these aren't passages that we could just look and be like, oh, well, I don't live there. I don't work there. I don't drive that. I don't. It's talking about me. It's talking about you. And so with that in mind, check this out. In, what, in, in, in talking about what the end times will be like, Jesus compares them to the times of Noah and to the times of Lot, but not in the ways that we would naturally think. Okay, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, in Genesis 6, when talking about the generation of people that were on the earth during Noah's time, this is what verses 11 and 12 say. Genesis 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Okay? Doesn't sound like what Jesus said. Then later in Genesis, you read about Sodom and the, and the picture of Sodom that's painted throughout the Old Testament is, is one of, of, of the city that is just rampant in sexual sin. Like I'm, I'm talking about like sin to the point where the men of the city, there's one story where the men of the city are surrounding a home and they're trying to break down a door in order to commit such sins that would make any reasonable person, Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. They're attempting to, to, to commit sin that should make anybody sick to their stomach. And yet again, that's, that's not what Jesus mentions. In Luke, 8, in Luke 17, in mentioning each of these times, he doesn't talk about them being violent, although they were. He doesn't talk about how disgusting it was, as it was. That's not what he draws our attention to. 
He says in verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the sons of, days of the Son of Man. He doesn't mention the violence that led to God flooding the entire earth. Instead, he says they were eating and drinking, marrying, being given into marriage. And so that's a little confusing, right? Then in verse 28, Jesus says, likewise, as it was in the days of Lot. But he doesn't mention the sexual sin that led to literal, literal fire being thrown from heaven and consuming an entire city. It's not what he brings up. He says they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Do you see what's going on here? I think the point that's being made is that although things that are evil and sinful absolutely have the potential to cause harm to our faith and to our prayers, the same could be said about the stuff that you and I just take for granted as well. Things that are normal, things that are entirely ordinary, things that you and I take part in each and every day can have the same potential of driving a wedge between us and God as the blatantly sinful things that every good Christian is mindful to stay away from. Like they both have the potential of playing a role in impacting our prayer lives for the negative talking about this passage, John Piper says the good things in life can make us just as insensitive to the reality of God as the gross things in life can. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, uh, it literally says, God speaking to the prophet says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Guys, I get off the freeway at Grand Avenue in Glendora every day when I get home. There's a big old thing on the side of the road there. You know what it says? Pride of the foothills. I live in the epicenter. We live in the epicenter of what? Pride, excess food, prosperous ease. Most people think that their lifestyle of ease and overabundance is just fine, right? In fact, isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal for us? For a lot of us, it is. But according to God in the Old Testament and according to Jesus here in the New, it wasn't okay for Sodom, so why would it be okay for us? When Jesus mentions in this passage, uh, what, Jesus, what Jesus mentions in this passage uh, is a hindrance to prayer that he will be, or a hindrance to the faith that he'll be looking for when he returns could have been any number of things. He could have mentioned sin, and that would have been true, Right? He could have mentioned doubt, as he does in other places in the New Testament. But he doesn't. He could have mentioned anything that we commonly associate with the main hindrances to our prayer lives. But instead, he points to the everyday, ordinary activities of life that can nevertheless draw attention away from establishing God's kingdom. That can nevertheless draw attention away from the reality of eternity. And when that happens, it will inevitably impact our faith, and it will inevitably impact the way that we pray. Look, and, and just to be clear, there's, there's nothing sinful about eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, or anything else that's going on here. Okay, sure, like you could take each of these things and make them sinful, but I don't think that's even being implied in this situation. You see, Jesus is simply making the point that lives that are defined by the things of our society will not, cannot be lives that are defined by faith and prayer. It just can't. And that hurts a bit, doesn't it? Because again, we live in the 
the, 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 if there was like a, a heat ray or a heat meter looking at like where in the world do we see what we see in, in Ezekiel 16, I'm pretty sure we'd be like the hottest red. And so that's hard. It's hard for us to, to do this because we, we live in the epicenter of pride and pos- prosperous ease. It's simply the water we swim in at the same time. We are deceiving ourselves if we think that we can maintain a prayer, the prayer life that Jesus is looking for while at the same time pursuing and living out the lifestyle of our culture. We're mistaken. The truth is, if we want the life of Jesus, then we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We have to. And Jesus still went to weddings. He ate and drank, bought and sold, all the normal stuff. He did everything that was listed in that, in that passage but his very life, his rhythms, his identity. He wasn't caught up in these things the way that our lives so commonly are. And so Jesus continues in the same train of thought, talking to the same group of people, answering the same question down in Luke 18, starting in verse one. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while, he, this judge, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not, give just, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And so if the first reason we don't have the prayer rhythms that we aspire to is an overabundance of comfort, the second reason from this passage is simply a loss of heart. A loss of heart. Just the very mentioning of the the purpose of this parable. Like if you've read through the New Testament, you know Jesus doesn't always tell you exactly what the parable is about. But here he does. He makes it really, really clear. And so just by nature of him doing that, it tries to make it abundantly clear for us that as the readers, that losing heart in the midst of prayer is something that Jesus absolutely anticipated of us. Jesus isn't shocked when we pray for a period of time and those prayers start to wane. Jesus isn't like disappointed in us when our prayers aren't sustained over a period of time. It was anticipated. Look, if if I'm being completely honest, like, I, I wrestled for a really long time about what I was going to talk about this morning. Like, it, it wasn't because I couldn't think of anything. It wasn't because I didn't have anything on my heart. Like, this passage was honestly on my heart a long time before I emailed Brian and Callie and told them that I, what I'd be preaching from. The reason why it took me forever is because I don't feel entirely comfortable preaching about something that I know I myself am not a good model of. I believe it's infinitely harder to lead people into something that you yourself aren't living out to the fullest extent. So I was conflicted because, like, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. Like, I, as I'm talking about a, a posture of prayer that is steadfast and defined by perseverance and patience, the kind of prayer that doesn't lose heart, even in circumstances where it seems like the prayer is going unanswered, like, please understand, like, there is no judgment coming from my direction. I'm preaching to myself first and foremost. But I think I'm calling us to something that God himself desires to do in us and through us. 
But in order for us to really wrap our minds around that, there's a number of things that I need and we need to understand if we're really going to actually understand this, par- this parable and put it into practice. And so first, like the woman in the parable is a widow. And this had social ramifications that during that time were, are, are, are entirely unfamiliar to the vast majority of us in this room. See, on the basis of her widowhood alone, her level of desperation is likely one that many of us never have and, and, and God willing never will have to experience in this life. Like this, this widow's level of desperation was at a place that I, that I know that I am, am entirely unfamiliar with. And then second, in talking about the judge, Jesus says that he did refuse for a while. You know, we don't know how long. Like it's not like in the Greek, it, it was three hours or whatever, Right? We don't know how long it was, but the reality is you and I are not very good for waiting for anything, for any amount of time, right? At least in part because of our overabundance of comfort, it's remarkably easy for us to then lose heart in prayer, right? It's like a domino effect. In our drive-through, microwave, Amazon Prime, on-demand culture, like it's gonna be a constant battle for us to not lose heart in prayer, Like when I can order anything in the world and have it on my doorstop in two days, there's no way for that to not translate into my prayer life where I can't just like click a button, pray a prayer and expect it to be answered in 48 hours. But that's not how prayer works. And maybe there have been instances in your life where you've been extremely desperate for God to come through in ways that only he could. Or or maybe there were seasons where you've been persistent over an extended period of time in prayer But for most of us, even if we can say at one point this was true about us, or even right now, maybe it is true about us. For most of us, it was an instance. It was momentary. It was a season. It wasn't something that's defined the duration of our lives. And then we just settled back into a routine once the prayer was answered or the season passed. The crisis was averted you know, the problem was solved. And the fervor of our prayer just kind of went back away, kind of like the tide returning to the ocean. What's worse, sometimes because we lose heart, the crisis isn't averted, the problem isn't solved, and we still allow our prayers to simply die out because our prayers weren't answered in the way or in the time frame that we had hoped. Like, this is where I personally feel the most convicted in this passage. Like, I, I read about this widow who is just persistent with this judge. She, she keeps coming to him. She keeps bothering him. The, the judge says that she's, he's worried of her beating him down with her continual coming. Like, and, and, and just to be clear, like, I, I, I've read this passage before, and I've, I've actually misread it. And so I want to be clear. Jesus isn't saying that he'll answer our prayers because of our persistence. Like he's creating a contrast between himself and the, and, and, and the judge in the parable, okay? He's, he's saying that like, if this judge who is unrighteous is willing to respond when this widow goes to him continually day in and day out, how much more will God answer our prayers? Not because of our consistency, but because he is instead of being unrighteous, he is in fact righteous himself. But again, how often have I really been persistent in the way that the widow is with my prayer? How many times in my life can I say that I've cried out to God day and night? Not many. And it's not because there's nothing for me to take to God in this way, but just like the parable of the sower, right? In Mark 13, 
There have been things that God has sown into my heart, words that, that God has placed there, but the, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, they, they've choking, choked out, choking, is that a word? Choked out what God has placed in my own heart. And ultimately it proves to be unfruitful. What about you? Can you relate to that? Jesus is calling his followers to live lives that are first marked by prayer and second, to be persistent in their praying. And again, if I'm fully honest, I can say that there are a number of ways where I'm doing pretty good. In following Jesus, I'm faithful. I'm, I'm able to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. But this isn't one of them. And so if I'm gonna fully live the life that God desires for me to live, it's gonna require, to me, require, to, it's gonna require me to make some serious changes in the area of prayer. What about you? And then finally, the third reason from the passage, I believe we don't have the prayer rhythm, rhythms that we are called to is simply because of a lack of faith. We just, just simply lack faith. And this can be due to any number of reasons. Maybe you've been following Jesus for just a little bit. And so you're still trying to get your bearings on this whole, you know, like living in communion and, and talking to this all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe. Like if, if that's true for you, then that's entirely reasonable. Right? And I hope for all of us that, that we never get to the place where we're like comfortable with the idea of talking to God, right? Like I hope that we're never not blown away by the reality that you and I as creation have access to the creator of all things. That should cause us to just like literally make our knees weak. But it, if anything, Having an understanding of who it is that we are talking to should give us the confidence to boldly approach him in prayer. Or maybe on the other hand, you've been following Jesus for a while now, but your faith isn't where you wish it was. Your prayer life isn't where you wish it was because in the past you've prayed for things and they weren't answered. Or again, maybe they weren't answered in the way or in the time frame that you had hoped. If, if that's you, again, please hear me. There is no judgment at all coming from me. Like that is an entirely reasonable and human response to feel disappointed, to feel let down, to have questions as to why you would go to this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God only to be responded with what seems like silence. It's entirely reasonable. But again, I would say that even that is something that should in turn be taken to God in prayer. And so I believe all three of these points are legitimate reasons for why we don't have the prayer rhythms we should. Like, I think that for all of us in this room, we can say that an overabundance of comfort has led to an underdependence of God. I think that all of us can say that we've prayed for things and we've lost heart in the midst of praying. But I think that this last point, this lack of faith is probably the cornerstone that kind of keeps those other two things in place. Like, let's be real. Okay? We have an, this overabundance of comfort because we've done everything in our power to build lives that, again, if we are honest, don't require us to have faith in God that he will pull through for us in ways that only he can. We've designed our lives this way. And so it makes sense that we don't have this desperation in our prayers. Second, we've lost heart in the midst of praying because 
we don't have this desperation for God to come through, and so we give up on prayer. Like it's like a like we're playing a board game, and there's a strategy towards winning that isn't going according to our plan. So we shift strategies. We try something else, and we just okay, fine. Well, if you're not going to do it, I will. If, if you're not listening, then I'll take matters into my own hands. Look, I'm wise. I'm good. I I've made it this far. I can make it the rest of the way myself. And we lose heart. We become discouraged. Become bitter. But as a result of these two things, we have these malnourished prayer lives because we lack the type of faith that Jesus is looking for out of his followers. Like, look, Jesus is coming back and his church will be here when he does. Those two things are not in question. But in Luke 18, 8, what Jesus is questioning is when the Son of Man comes, not if, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so while you and I might say we have malnourished prayer lives because we lack faith, I think it's equally, if not even more appropriate to say that we have malnourished faith because we lack prayer. And look, the solution, like you're like, Chris, come on, man. Like that's two sides to the same coin. Okay, maybe, maybe it is. But if you wanna grow in your prayer life, then pray prayers that require faith. And if you wanna grow in your faith, the problem, the problem might be different, but the solution is the same. Pray prayers that require faith. Am I promising that God will answer every single one of those prayers exactly how we'd want him to? No, obviously I'm not. Like if you were here last week, you heard my friend Greg, and he, he told this story about his daughter begging him to make the pain stop when she was at the doctor's and they were giving her a shot, right? She's crying. She's looking like, please, dad, make this guy stop. Make the pain end. And Greg didn't. He allowed the doctor do what, to do what he was there for him to do. In the same way, just like his daughter, like we can beg and we can plead God to remove pain or to open doors or any number of things that, to which his, might, his answer might not be what we want it to be. But just like Grace getting her shot was for her ultimate good. And even when, when God answers with a no or a not yet, Always, 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 even the no's, even the not yet's can be used by God to accomplish his purposes, which will ultimately lead not only to his, his glory, but also our own good. They're not mutually exclusive. They're one and the same. And so look, I'm not gonna stand up here and, and pretend like I fully understand the complexities of unanswered prayer. I'm not gonna lie to you and tell you that I know every single thing and I could come up here and deliver a sermon with confidence about why God doesn't answer things the way that I wish he did or, or what those verses that I read at the beginning, how those ultimately play out in our lives. Reality is we live in a fallen world with spiritual forces at play. The reality is there, are, there is nuance throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that surrounds the topic of prayer throughout the entirety of scripture. But what I've got to remember and what we've got to remember is that God is a person to be related to. It's, he's not a theological problem to be solved or a puzzle to be pieced together. And in the midst of all of that, he asks us to pray. Like it's, it's not as if we could like find a lamp, rub it a certain way, and all our prayers are gonna be answered according to our will. There is more to prayer than a ritual to recite or a formula to apply. The one on the other end of our prayers is this all-powerful, all-knowing, loving creator and sustainer of the universe. 
The one on the other end of our prayers knows our hearts. He knows our wants. He knows our needs. He is not ignorant. He is not naive. And yet he asks us to pray. I believe it's so that we will come to better know him. And so in light of all of this, in light of this passage, in light of this truth, what should we do? Well, in a nutshell, we should pray, right? Um, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. If I'm going to more fully lean into the fullness of life that Jesus came to provide, it's going to require that I grow in how and how often I pray. At the same time, that's part of the beauty of Jesus. Like, you don't need me. You don't need Brian to be your model of praying consistently because Jesus is already that for each and every one of us. Like, the only reason I was willing to preach a message along these lines is because although I don't have this mastered, I know the one who does. And although I don't have, you know, my, my example is, is just remarkably insufficient, Jesus' example is without flaw. And so I plead with you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who, who put the lures of the world, the, the bad and the good, he put them aside and, and lived in such a way that his life was one that was defined by prayer. Look to Jesus who, who, had the, who was persistently day in, day out, going to the Father on behalf of the lost, on behalf of the sick, on behalf on the, of the broken, on behalf of us. When it comes to prayer, look to Jesus who was so filled with faith that even with the cross before him was able to pray, not my will, but your will be done. And for the joy that was set before him endured the cross on our behalf. Like Jesus is our model, not some pastor, not definitely not me, not the person to your left, not the person to your right. Jesus has got to be our model for what it looks like, what it can look like for us to, to live this out. And so if we are going to finally do this, how do we practically live this out? Okay, three things, and we'll close here, okay? First, call me crazy, but I got an idea. What if we just simplified our lives a little bit, right? Like, what if, what if we just cut it back a little, okay? And this is gonna look wildly different for every single one of us, but for example, let's say, what if we didn't go out and just buy the next new thing as soon as it became available because we can afford it? What if we didn't do that? Um, or for some of us, that wouldn't even be a sacrifice, would it? Like, what if we went even further? What if we adjusted our budgets and gave to the point where reliance on God uh, to come through for us and our families was actually something we came to experience? What if when things got financially dicey, instead of allowing things, you know, giving to be the first thing to get cut out of our, our, our budget, what if we actually doubled down and sought new ways to be generous? You know, listen, no one has ever become poor or died by being too generous. It's yet to happen. But what if we lived in such a way that people began to question if we were going to be the first ones to actually see that come true? <laughs> right? Like, could you imagine rumors around the neighborhood? What happened to the Johnsons? Their stocks crash? Was it inflation? Did he lose his job? No. You know what it was? They were just too generous. Right? Again, I don't think that'll ever happen. But what if we lived our lives in such a way that thought, like, maybe it could. Not for that reason. That'd be entirely ridiculous. But what if we were radically generous for the purpose of deepening both our faith and our prayer life? 
What if we were generous for the purpose of living out the kind of Christianity that we see in the New Testament that I, for one, don't believe is just described, but actually prescribed? Like if the, if the church in Acts was known for selling their possessions and seeing to it that there was not a single needy person in their midst, then why is it such a ridiculous suggestion to propose that we try to aim to live similar lives ourselves? If an overabundance of comfort is genuinely an obstacle in knowing and experiencing God, then doing whatever we can to close that gap is the most reasonable thing we can at least try to do. Second, if this parable, take this parable and allow it to seek deep roots into your heart. Okay, put yourself in the shoes of this widow. Pray with consistency. Pray with desperation. Pray as if your life or, or someone else's life was actually at stake. In, in some situations, it might be, Right? Like how different would our lives look if we were able to take the things that God has put on our heart, we write them down, we write them in the journal at the front of the room, and we continue praying for these things until we see God answer our prayers in one way or another. What if we actually did this? Like it's, it could be so easy for us to hear something, to read something, to even experience something ourselves, and then to pray about it a handful of times, then allow time to go on. Our, pain, our, our passion to wane and to allow the prayer to go unanswered before God is able to accomplish what he may have accomplished if we had simply been more persistent. Because again, I don't think prayer is intended to simply be a mere transaction between us and God. I think it's meant to be a means through which God shapes us and molds us, just like Haley prayed at the beginning and draws us into deeper intimacy with himself. And when we shortchange our prayers, we stunt the work of God both in us and through us. And then finally, third and finally, let's be people who pray prayers that require faith. Pray prayers that require faith. Let's pray specific prayers. Let's pray the kind of prayers that will only come to pass if God is the one to make it so. Like if you and I were to, to have every single prayer that we prayed this week answered, how different, how different would our lives look? How different would your life look? If every pray, prayer that you prayed this week was answered, how different would your place of work look? How different would this country look? How different would the world look? Would there be any difference at all? And beyond that, if every prayer you prayed this week was answered, would you even be able to tell that it was God who answered it? Or have our prayers become so vague that there's no way to really tell? Like, dear God, help me to have a good day. Amen. Good enough, right? Look, when reality is Jesus is returning. There's no question about if this will happen, okay? But what's that question? What Jesus is wondering is when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? My hope is that our answer would be a resounding yes and that Ignite City Church would play its role in seeing this come to pass. Okay, listen, no more two truths and a lie when it comes to Jesus. What he has said is true. He is faithful, and so let's allow ourselves to live the type of lives that are not only described, but prescribed, particularly in the area of prayer. Like it says in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast, fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I... Um, I feel uncomfortable praying after a sermon about prayer <laughs> because I know that my own prayer life isn't what it should be. I know that you desire 
to do more in me and through me. And um, if that's gonna come to pass, it's gonna mean that I come to rely on you more. It's gonna mean that I pray things that are specific. It's gonna mean that I'm gonna pray things that require faith. It's gonna mean that I, I, I put in the work to actually be who you've called me to be, who you created me to be. And yet if I, if we are willing to do this, God, I'm convinced that you'll turn our worlds upside down. That you'll do things in us and through us that, that we have no option but to give you glory for. And so God, now I, I just, I pray, I plead with you that you would draw us to yourself, that you would allow us to, to have prayer lives that are persistent, that like this widow, we would be consistent and, 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 and intense with the ways and the frequency with which we pray. God, I pray for every single person in this room that regardless to where we're currently at with you, that you would draw us deeper and deeper and deeper into a walk with you for the sake of our homes, for the sake of our communities, for the sake of our world. God, draw us to yourself. Holy Spirit, convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted and then empower us to go out of this room differently than we came in. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. Um, as you walked in this morning, you should have been handed a, um, a little cup with um, some, a little wafer on the top of it. If you would take that out real quick. Um, we're gonna take communion together. The reality is what these elements represent are Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. Jesus said that whenever we do this, we should do it in remembrance of him. And what are we remembering? We're remembering that God, who, who left the comforts of heaven behind in order to live in the midst of his creation, who was, again, rebellious, wanted nothing to do with him, and was willing to be killed by them on their behalf so that he could have this, this access to us, this communication with us, these li this life with us. And so as you, we, we sing this song, we go back into a time of worship. Okay, take the bread, take the cup. Remember Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was shed in order to make a way for us to be made right with God in order for us to be able to pray in a way that doesn't require sacrifice, that sacrifice was already paid. It doesn't require money, the price was already given. All that's needed to be done for us to be made right with God was done by the breaking of his body and the pouring of his blood. And so as we go into this last song, take the, take the bread, take the cup, and um, remember who it is that we're singing to and what he's done on our behalf so that we can. Amen? Amen.